James chapter 5, 13 to 20. James 5, 13 to 20. I'm just going to read the text. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, the pastors of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we wrap up this study today. Holy Spirit, open our hearts to truth and understanding. Guard us from error. Let us be the kind of church where your grace is poured out in forgiveness and healing touch and the restoration of those who wander from the truth. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's significant that All of James' closing remarks, particularly our text, 13 through 20, they deal with different aspects of corporate Christianity, the the corporate responsibility of each believer as he or she is found in a local congregation. He winds up by talking about the church what it's all about, how to maximize life and ministry. There are a lot of Christians who don't appreciate their need of the body of Christ and regular fellowship with other Christians. Paul, I preached on it a few Sunday mornings ago, he he writes about the members of the church being like members of a physical body, and I, I think... We have all used that passage to point out that each one of us has, has gifts to help bless and minister to others in the church. And that's true, but I think there's another point to those words in 1 Corinthians 12, 18 to 26. Think about it. Not only does the hand need the foot and the foot need the hand. That's obviously true, and I think we understand our responsibility to minister in the body of Christ. Even if we don't do it, we understand what Paul is saying. I think there's more challenge in those verses than just that. 
I'm coming to realize that Paul's deeper point in that passage is a little different. His point is that an eye can't hear and an ear can't see. That is, without regular involvement in my church, on my own, me, pastor, board member, maybe you're here, you have your doctorate, you're in ministry, you're... It's, it's, it's a humbling thing to admit. It's a humbling thing for me to admit. Without regular attachment in my church, I'm either deaf or blind on my own. If I'm an eye, I can't hear. If I'm an ear, I can't see. That is, individual members, apart from the body, can't help but live deformed lives because they were meant, they were created to function only as parts joined to others. That's what an ear is for. Take it off your head and it doesn't do anything. The ear finds its potential only when it's attached to the side of my head. Christian, Regardless of how mature you are and how knowledgeable you are, how prominent you might be, you're vulnerable without attachment to a local body of believers. That, that's the point. You're vulnerable. You may be ordained. You may be in full-time ministry. You may have a master's degree. But Paul and the Holy Spirit want you to know that you, you, need, you need that carpenter, that plumber, that accountant, that teacher sitting beside you or behind you or in front of you if you want to be strong in the Lord. You can't keep your marriage strong by yourself. Your prayer life won't be powerful without the ministry of the church. We're going to look at that. You won't be as holy and as pure as the Lord wants you to be without regular participation in a local body of believers. That's Paul's point. That's James' point, rather. And Paul's. In the Corinthian passage. And this is true no matter how strong in the Lord you become in your own personal prayer life and Bible study. You will still, in Paul's imagery, only be a stronger eye or a stronger ear. And an ear, even a very healthy ear, will never be able to see. And an eye, even a very healthy eye, will never be able to hear. What's the big deal, Pastor Don, about coming to church consistently and frequently? Well, the New Testament says the big deal is you were created for dependency not only on the Lord, but also dependency on other members in a local body of believers. We never rise above that. We never rise above that. Without the church, without the church, I'm just a big hand trying to walk or a big foot trying to play the violin. Or a big blind ear bumping into the walls of life. And so, James closes his letter talking about two areas of corporate church life. Prayer, 13 through 18. Correction and restoration, 19 and 20. So let's jump in. Point number one. James teaches 
the mental discipline of what Paul called praying without ceasing. In James 5.13, is anyone among you, and he, and he lists these two conditions. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing, let him sing praise. So the secret, apparently, is learning to relate all of my life directly to God. And, and James says, I do that primarily by these different forms of, of prayer. And he highlights these two particular times when prayer is especially needed. Times of trouble. I'm not using his exact words, but times of trouble and times of blessing. Times of trouble and times of blessing. First, times of trouble. You just can't live long without experiencing seasons. Don't you go through seasons where you think, am I, just, am I just doing everything wrong? Why are more things going wrong than right? Not just for a few days, but maybe even for a prolonged season, and it can lead to discouragement, and it can lead to weariness. There are times when you just don't seem to have the energy or the inclination to to seriously delight your heart in the Lord. Your faith doesn't easily rise to believe that things will ever change for the better. Maybe you're here like that this morning. What am I doing wrong? What's happening to me? And so James calls us to face the fact now that there will be times when you feel like giving up on prayer. There will. Jesus knew these times would come. He expected them, and he told his disciples to expect them. Luke 18, 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray, not lose heart. Don't quit. Pray and don't quit. Prayer doesn't always remove suffering. That's not the promise of James, and it's not the promise of Jesus. But prayer can keep you from losing heart when you go through times of difficulty. Suffering, pain, fatigue, trial, these are a part of life for the saint and for the atheist alike. But losing heart is something different. It comes from losing touch with God. The greater the suffering, the greater the need for Linking the heart to God's throne in prayer. In our time of need, let us come boldly. Then he talks about times of blessing. Troubles make us discouraged. Blessings can make us forgetful. Preoccupied. Is life going really, really well for you right now? There is a proper response to that before the Lord. In fact, there's a commanded response. Is anyone cheerful, 13b? Let him, let him sing praise. Just do it. There is a sound theological reason for passionate praise and worship. And it has nothing to do with the common silly, mistaken notion that, well, emotional, charismatic types just need something to do in church. 
let them wave their arms around and do their thing. And the most dangerous thing about your normal daily routine is the way it makes you forget about God. The most dangerous thing about your normal daily routine is the way it makes you forget about God. Praise and express thankfulness. That's the scriptural response to trace the hand of God into your daily habits. We sang it this morning. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. That's not Pentecostal. It's biblical. Maybe you've never seen that as a scriptural command before. Maybe there are blessed people, surely, in this place today that that need to hear the Holy Spirit gently say, get your hands out of your pocket. Lift your head. Lift your voice. Pray the words of the song. Ponder them carefully. Stretch your soul before me in grateful worship and praise. Why? The most dangerous thing about your daily routine is the way it tends to make you forget about God. Why is it so important to God that I publicly acknowledge His grace and goodness in my life? Is God like that relative who tells you she's coming over to the house so you have to go down into the basement and find the things she's given you and put them out on display because her feelings are going to be hurt? Does he just need recognition? Is he insecure? No. That's not it at all. Any one of you cheerful, blessed, sing songs of praise. Let it, let it out. There's a really good coming out of the closet. You see, there's someone sitting one row back from you right now in this room who through no fault of his or her own is having a hard time seeing the goodness of the Lord. Right now. One row back. One row in front. In fact, he's having a hard time believing that his situation will ever turn around. And then he sees you, or he sees someone else, and he knows not all that long ago you too were hurting big time. And God was faithful. Perhaps it took quite a while, but your heart is now full of song. And this hurting brother needs to know that because he knows you're no more special, no more brilliant than he. He needs to see your heart abounding expressively in joyful songs of thankfulness, gladness, and praise. That's how the body of Christ works when we gather together. You lift him up. Always remember, your worship isn't just for Jesus. And it isn't just to lift your own heart, though it is certainly the case that that happens. You're singing songs of praise. It's for your brother and sister in the Lord. We used to sing that 
biblical text. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the holy place. That's right, it is in the Bible. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. People singing to other people. Come, bless the Lord. I don't know how you interpret that verse. Here's the priesthood. They're in the temple. And that lamp by the altar that never, ever can go out. Lit all the time. Tended all the time by somebody. I don't know this part for sure, but what happens when, you know, around 2 or 3 a.m., you start to doze off? Come. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the house of the Lord. Bless his name. Point number two. James gives specific instructions for the body of Christ in the face of sickness in any of its members. James 5, 14 through 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And then, and then these, and if he has committed sins, we almost wish these weren't in there, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And so you have this healing And sins, sins, sick. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Is this this to remind me that I never qualify for God's healing grace any more than I qualify for his forgiving grace? I think there's something very freeing in those strange words. It's very easy to think, I, what about the person who brings something on himself physically? I... I just pick a silly illustration because it's the most obvious. I, I don't mean to harp. I'm just looking for an illustration. But a person, say, who's, who smokes for 25 years and gets lung cancer, is he disqualified asking for healing because, well, if he just hadn't been, he would be fine? Do, do, do we earn? Do we earn some kind of special grace by moral carefulness and uprightness? Or is James trying to say that, that I, 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 don't, I don't qualify for physical healing any more than I qualify for having my sins forgiven? And I never qualify for that. Without taking too much time to develop the point, let me just say that attempts to make these verses refer to spiritual healing rather than physical are just biased and fruitless. I sat in John MacArthur's church and listened to him preach for 88 minutes trying to convince the whole church that this has nothing to do with physical healing. It won't work. 
it won't work. True, James links spiritual healing with physical later on in verse 16, but the subject he's working with is clearly physical healing. This is even more powerfully attested to in the instruction about anointing with oil. The only person to teach directly about anointing with oil, and it's not the only way healing comes, and it isn't always done this way in the New Testament. But the only person to teach directly about anointing with oil is Jesus. And we know he only talked about it once, as far as the records show, and it was clearly just in connection with physical healing. That reference, by the way, is Mark chapter 6, 7 to 13. And if you want, I'll just read that quickly. Mark 6, 7 to 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. No doubt about it. James is writing to this New Testament church about physical healing. And while there are many descriptions of miracles and healing in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, this is the only place the New Testament gives instructions for how to pray for physical healing in the church. And so, for that reason alone, it deserves some careful attention as we wrap up the book of James. Here are things that interest me. First, the emphasis in these instructions is on the sick person receiving prayer from others rather than praying for himself or herself. Both the pastors, that's the meaning of that word elder, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, 14, and then the members of the church, pray one for another, verse 16, are, are to be involved. I'm not saying that people can't believe God and pray for their own healing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that when the New Testament gives specific instruction on how the church should usually pray for healing, the emphasis is on the faith of the body life of the congregation, not just the faith of the individual with the need. Something very gracious in that. A very common theme. Watch the guys raising money on TV this afternoon. And a very common explanation for everyone who's not healed is, is their lack of faith or their bad confession or their something, something, something. But it's their fault. That's not where James goes. These are grace-filled words as I see it. Many times the sheer pain of our physical condition can seem to diminish our capacity for robust faith. That's why it's the faith of others that is stressed in this passage. They come, they carry you along. Think deeply about this. 
Our prayer lives aren't solitary things. Our prayers are interconnected in the body of Christ. Most churches don't have prayer meetings anymore. It's hard to get people to come. It's hard because people think the prayer meeting only has to do with those who choose to come, not the rest of the church. And that's an enormous mistake. It's like thinking that if Air Canada Flight 747 runs out of fuel, it only affects the pilot. You are affected by the spiritual power and dynamic of this church, whether you ever come to seek God corporately or not. You have a stake in it. You have a stake in it. James attaches your physical healing, the area of our lives where we become usually most keenly aware of our pain. He attaches that to the spiritual health of the whole body and the way they pray together and the faith of the congregation and the mindset of the whole church. Secondly, there are occasions when the Lord ties ministry to the body with ministry to the heart, and both of these ministries are to be ongoing in a healthy church. This is where 15 and 16 are so interesting. James 5, 15 and 16, just the first part of 16. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. I don't take it to mean that those have to occur at the same time. So you want healing, well then you better make sure you get all the sin out of your life. But just the regular part of the body life of the church is, these are people who are transparent with each other with all of their needs, not just their lower back pain. There's there's a transparency with all that they go through. It's the kind of church where people can say, please pray for me. The doctors found a lump and I have tests on Wednesday. They can do that and they can say, please pray for me. I, I, I just feel like I'm not, I'm not letting my light shine for Jesus at work the way I wish I did. Would you please pray for me that I won't be timid? James is saying, James is saying that both those things ought to be happening concurrently in the body of Christ just all the time. We rely on one another. The same kind of love and openness that would allow me to invite you to pray for my sore back should allow me to invite you to pray for my cold heart. Point number three. Always remember... The church prays to the God of Elijah. James 5, 17 and 18. James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So there's the link. Elijah and you. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. I think there's something in all of us that keeps the story of Elijah tucked away with 
some of the other stories that we learned in Sunday school. He was a man, verse 17 says, with a nature just like ours. That word translated nature, with a nature just like ours, it's the same one Paul uses. In the book of Acts, there's this fascinating account, Acts 14. They're in this time of ministry. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, why are you doing these things? So here's, isn't this refreshing? Here's people giving Paul and Barnabas these accolades of their greatness and worship. And boy, oh boy, it's hard not to just... Soak that up. You can fake humility. Oh, please, oh, please. But in here, sweet. Paul and Barnabas see what these people are doing, worshiping them. They start ripping their clothes. Rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you when we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. We're people just like you. Same nature. That's what James is saying about Elijah. Just like you. He had a burning passion for God's glory. By the way, that's why he prayed that it wouldn't rain. Think about why James picks this episode from Elijah. There were others. Why this one? Well, it was God who caused the drought. It was God who would heal the drought. The people were worshiping idols and false gods, and Elijah couldn't stand it. He couldn't sleep while the people blasphemed his God. And then read 1 Kings 18. See how Elijah prayed. He went up top of Mount Carmel, quite a trek in itself, bowed down to the ground. It says he put his head between his knees. You ever tried it? He did that seven times, seeking prayer, earnest prayer, what the old King James called fervent prayer. I know about unanswered prayer. I've prayed for things. It didn't happen the way I wanted them to happen. I know about that. You do too. But James isn't putting stuff like this in his book. Just to increase my confidence in unanswered prayer. He, he's putting it in there to say, God, God will work when you, you have a heart for his glory and a passionate prayer life and you're linked with the body of Christ. Don't ever give up on that. And you don't have to be special. Elijah is just like you. Four. In a thriving church, we're almost done. In a thriving church, there must be a heart to restore the erring and a willingness to be corrected. It's in 19 and 20. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you And this is how it happens. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, 
gradually, carelessly. Someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a strange phrase. Such a beautiful balance in these closing words, the last two verses. It's the last thing James wrote. He's given a a lot of bold, down-to-earth instructions in the book of James. We've gone through the whole book in these about 19 weeks. There are more commanding verbs per chapter in James than any book in the New Testament. James just fires from the hip. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. It's that kind of book. But James doesn't just want you to do God's will. He wants you to want everyone else to do God's will. How does a church do this? Well, unless we're very careful, unless our, our minds are taught and ordered around passages like this regularly, there are two worldly approaches to our collective pursuit of holiness. Two worldly approaches. The first mistake is just to buy into the tolerant live and let live attitude that is just so common prevalent in our age and increasingly prevalent in the church. And so we'll cite scriptures like, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye till you've removed the beam from your... Who are we to judge? Live and let live. But Jesus didn't end his instructions with that sentence. After he said, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye, he said... First take the log, Matthew 7, 5. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Your brother's eye. Your brother's eye. That's what James is talking about. he's, He's talking about a living, honest, loving church where everyone is open to confessing sin and receiving correction. The first is always easier than the second. But he forbids a cold indifference to a brother who's wandering from the truth. So the first worldly response is just, well, we just live and let live. Jesus will do it with his heart. It's not my job. I'm not the spiritual police. The second worldly response that James forbids is the exact opposite of indifference. He forbids any kind of lingering condemnation of a restored brother or sister. It's actually made clear in James' remarks at the end of verse 20, where he says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, when we think of covering a multitude of sins, here's the verse we usually think about. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain 
mercy. So obviously, that kind of covering my sin is something we're not supposed to do. But that verse is talking about me trying to cover up my own sin. I can never cover it up from the Holy Spirit, but I can, I can hide it from you. And, and, and the writer of Proverbs says, you go down that path of trying to appear better than you really are, and there is nothing good coming in your life. Nothing's going to prosper. That's disaster in the making. James is writing about a person who used to be all fouled up in sin. What a beautiful way to end his letter. All fouled up in sin, maybe embarrassingly so, hurt a lot of people, but someone, someone in faithful love has gone, brought the truth in a loving way, not compromising the truth, but in a loving way, and has, and has brought that wayward brother back. He's brought him back. He's back. He's turned from his sin. And this is where this reminder from James is so critical. We all need to hear it. Don't any of you ever treat that brother like he's a convict. That brother who's wandered from the truth, maybe tragically, and been brought back, don't you treat him with anything less than the full acceptance and grace that you got from Jesus when you came back with all your sin. Don't you dare make him second class because of where he's been in his sin. It's just all gone. It's all gone. So Jesus said we're to love each other just in exactly the same way that he loved us. And that's why I think these verses from James is one of the most beautiful ways to close the letter. I think people, I think people are dying for a church like that. Where, where the truth of God's word isn't compromised and where the grace of Jesus isn't compromised either. There's just, there's just something that has to be winsome about that. After all, we're coming up to Christmas and Jesus came and in those beautiful words, full of grace and truth. Never leave any one of them behind. And everyone sad? Let's pray.